Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 89. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. And we are a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's movie and pop culture blind spots. That means that each episode, one of us gets to do the choosing. The choosing. The, the forced viewing ensues. Mm-hmm. And then we unpack it all here for you. Most of the time, it's something the other person has never seen before. And, you know, to make this as fair as possible, we do take turns. Yes. It's not my turn. I shouldn't even be on mic right now. That's right. I think you should carry the show. (laughs) Okay. Put it on your back (laughs) and take us into the sunset here. So I chose a movie. Ashley chose a movie. The movie that I chose because we are steeped in 90s nostalgia via 1960s nostalgia. So it's like... We? I don't know if it's we. Everywhere. I didn't know if you were making a statement about us and our... This is like a... It's like a nostalgia sandwich. It's like a millennial boomer nostalgia sandwich. The Times right now? No, I'm in this film. You didn't even say what it's called. I didn't. This... (laughs) It is called the, That Thing You Do. And you were just doing that thing you do. <laughs> yes. Where you don't name the movie. No, I'm just kidding. The thing that I do is uh, provide um, some context for the, uh, before I announce. Okay. And just so you're not missing out on anything. It's like a drum roll, only vocal. The title of the movie, just to clear, be fully clear here, is That Thing You Do, exclamation point. Exclamation point, That Thing yes. You Do, 1996. Yes. Tom Hanks' directorial debut. I almost couldn't say that word. Yeah, I had to look up what other films he directed. And there I were never several got around others. to that. There were several others, but... Um, I, I was going to do that, and I forgot yeah. to. Yeah. But I do know this was his first. Yes. And he wrote it. He wrote the screenplay. Yes. It was his project. And 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 Tom Hanks is a boomer, so born in nineteen fifty six. Wait, so can we blame him for everything that's wrong in the world? Um. Well, you know, he started COVID, as everyone knows. Oh my God! He was the You're first right. one. He was the first one. <laughs> Do you remember? I remember being really worried about Tom Hanks when he was yeah. doing Instagram posts with COVID, yeah, and they were in Australia like, or something, like February of twenty twenty. Him or and Rita, the, yeah, our our uh, glorious uh, successful couple. Well, they're sort of like he's sort of like the male America sweetheart, if if that is a thing. So you know how we say that expression sometimes. Yeah. Tom Hanks is kind of a national treasure. Yes. I mean, like, I don't think there's anyone who, like, yeah, I I can't think of, I mean, like, I'm sure he's done things that are problematic. I mean, like, all of Forrest Gump, but. (laughs) You want to talk problematic? Let's go back to Bosom Buddies. But then again, he's getting started and you take the gig you can get. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Well, I mean. Probably don't. All of the early 80s was problematic, so. (laughs) Oh my god, I just realized, wasn't Peter Scolari in that too? And then he was in this movie, and then okay. that means they stayed friends for 40 years. Wow. 50 years, whatever. Okay, <laughs> so can you give us a, a thumbnail description for, for anybody who... I know this was a huge movie. There's yeah. got to be somebody out there who's never seen it, because after all, I'm one of those people who had never seen it. So it came out in 96, which means I was like 14 the summer that this came out. So apparently I'm only doing movies that came out when I was in my, like, early teens. Okay, but I have a problem where I'm only doing movies from 1993. Yeah, that's true. That's a little more... <laughs> that, that's kind of more problematic and specific. I need to get out of my comfort so, zone. So, I mean, like, I want to say, just like the last film that we did for me, which was Now and Then, um, 
that there was like a giant like MTV campaign promoting this thing. I don't actually I don't think there was for now and then, but I know that there was. So there were a lot of like movies that I saw because like I was sneaking in to watch MTV. I was not allowed to watch MTV because my mom was scared that I would end up like one of those uh, bikini clad girls like stretched out on the hood of cars. That was her fear. Or dancing in cages was the other thing she was worried about. You know, I'm thinking now my parents who are like Christian scientists and all that. I think they just didn't really notice what MTV was because when I started watching, it was when MTV got plugged in, you know, yeah. that first those first couple of years. And I just watched whatever. And I guess they weren't in the room or whatever. They never seemed to... Anyway. So I wasn't allowed to... So I would, like, when they were out of the house or, or doing something else, I would, like, put on MTV. And so MTV was on this massive campaign to promote that thing you do because it's music-related and it's Tom Hanks and... Probably it came from the same studio that owned MTV, probably Universal. I actually don't remember. Is it Warner Brothers? I don't know. Anyway, somebody paid Whatever somebody it is, to it's promote it. It's all changed it. hands about yeah. six times since <laughs> then because everybody else owns everybody else now. So I'm pretty sure that I saw this in the theater, but I don't remember specifically. But I do remember I watched it a lot on videotape and like I totally had a crush on Tom Everett Scott. So Oh, he's the lead? Yes. He plays Guy. He plays Guy, Guy Patterson. Guy Patterson. Of Erie, Pennsylvania. So Guy is a drummer who is not part of the band initially, but kind of No, he wants to be a jazz drummer. Yeah, he gets drawn in. Um It's it's interesting to go back and watch this. I guess we can talk about some more of that later, but um I don't know. There were a lot of really interesting details in this that I would not have noticed when I was 14 or 16 rewatching this over and over. Pretty sure I own this on VHS. Um, yeah, you said you used to watch it on tape all the time. Yeah, we watched it on tape <laughs> on our, our, you know, big, chunky television, you Did know. You ha- Oh, okay. I it was you, silver, or silver, what I chunky were, television. What you're missing is she's <laughs> gesturing with her hands out, making this huge rectangle. We had the it, same it, color TV, like, from... I mean, I, my parents bought it used. I, th- I want to say we we had the same color TV for, like, 15 years. Okay. It was nuts. Did you, you know? guys have a top-loading VCR or the front... It was uh, a front-loading. So we had kinda. lots... Okay, my mom owned a tape duplication business... That yeah. she ran out of our house. So whenever we had a VHS player break, we just inherited a, an old one. Because you have to, if you're in the tape duplication business, you have to, like, replace the the tape. Because after a while, the, um, it just doesn't run as smoothly. Uh-huh. So it's still fine to play your tapes at home, but it's not Not good as accurate for, for re-recording. For recording. So, like, yeah. we would just, like, inherit whatever you know, VCR from the tape duplication business, we would move it into the living room um, when when our other one broke. I so. love how you set the scene yeah. in terms of, like, technology <laughs> at the time that you watch this, just so everybody understands. Yeah. So. We had the big master tapes that... And master tape recording device that records to, like, 20 VHS things. Anyway, lots I'm, of wires. I'm impressed. I would have thought that was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Because I was an amateur. This is just my childhood. I was so. an amateur tape duplicator. So at some point, I guess we had two VCRs. So yeah. my early, uh, you know, we're sitting in the room with my DVD collection, but it used to be a VHS collection. And it was all rent the tape, copy the movie by hooking yeah. up the two tapes with the RCA plugs. Yeah. Massive VHS uh, collection of weird stuff. Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting because, like, I don't think that kiddos today necessarily have the experience with, like, knowing... I mean, like, because the knowledge that you have to have in order to record off of television or to copy one tape to another is, like, you have to know about, like, wire inputs and outputs, and you have to know about, like, selecting the right input on the right device. And there's, like, all this, like, knowledge that you have to have in order to correctly like, do that. And like, I don't feel like kids have that. Same thing with like computers, like used to you had to do all this stuff. Like, if you wanted to open an operating system, you had to type in like CD backslash open the operating system, you had to have a like a basic understanding of sort of the hardware and software. And I feel like now it's just sort of like a plug and play thing. So like, when it breaks, they're like, Oh, it's broken. You know, and they don't even think to, like, try all the things that you're supposed to do, like, turn it off and turn it on again and see if you can reboot the system and try cleaning the heads and all the stuff that you used to have to do to, like, anyway, this got off on a weird tangent. It did get off on a, but I'm into it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But let's get back to the movie. Yes. (laughs) Because I lived through that time. Well, I mean, it ties back because uh, Tom Everett Scott works in a uh, appliance in his family's appliance store. Oh my God, that was so elegant! Yes, what a great segue! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love that appliance store production design too. But why didn't you see this movie, Dave? Um, I don't know. Ninety six. Yes, ninety six. I don't know. Yeah. Probably, maybe I heard the song in too mm-hmm. many ads and got super irritated. Okay. This that thing is a earworm, man. It is. You, I have it in my head. I've had it in my head all morning. We saw the movie like I don't know four days ago now or something yeah. like that. It's been in my head for days, and I remember when there were ads for this all the time. Mm-hmm. And apparently, it w- it won uh, best song at the Oscars and the and the Golden Globe. And yeah. All that. Man. Okay. But what's the <laughs> movie about? Uh, so uh, the movie is about. Um, it's a, a group of young guys who have a garage band and they write a hit song. And then like sort of our 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 main character's role in this is that their their original drummer injures himself yeah. um trying to jump over a uh um a fire a parking, no, a parking uh, meter. A parking meter. Right? He injures his arm and so he can't play anymore, so they have um uh, guy join the band because he's an experienced drummer for this battle of the bands competition that they're going to. Um, so, you know, they play the song. It's kind of like a slow ballad sort of thing, but when they get to the battle of the bands competition, guy decides that he's going to bring the tempo up a little bit. And when he does that, like people come out and dance, they win the competition, they get the attention of, um, like a local um, music promoter. Yep. Um, and then it sort of takes off from there. They get picked up by... They they go to a performance in Pittsburgh, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're in a small town in Pennsylvania. They get picked up for this, like, showcase in Pittsburgh. And then they get the attention of Playtone, which is a major label. They who, cut their own yeah. 45 yeah. in a church. That's right. <laughs> because they know a guy who knows a guy, and um, the the promoter, uh, the the bigger manager from the label, um, gets them on like a state fair tour uh, during it, the summer. It's Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks plays the big promoter. <laughs> the big promoter, um, 
And then they start working their way up the U.S. charts. Um, Billboard, it's a big ad for Billboard. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it is not a real record label. Playtone is the fake record label name. And then, you know, at some point they get sent to the coast to record, to maybe record their big album because they've got like a top 10 charting. Well, they're climbing hit. the Billboard charts, yeah. so they're going to go do big promotion in California. Yeah. And they're going to be in a movie. They have a scene in a movie for a stupid beach blanket kind yeah. of surfer thing. And it's, a, then, it's a fake Frankie and Annette And movie. they're going to make their debut on national television. I mean, mm. so it's just climbing, climbing, climbing before we fall, fall, fall. Yeah, and then essentially once they get in the recording studio, they're kind of obtuse uh, lead singer guy is um, too good to just record covers and songs written by other people and he only wants to do his own original music so the whole thing falls apart and it's a big sort of like metaphor for the one hit wonder and sort of like Ashley what's yes. the name of the band what's <laughs> the, the name wonders. of this band? It's the, the, wonder. the wonders it's the wonder and originally it's spelled uh, O-N-E because they're trying to do a yeah. pun sort of name yeah. like the Beatles with yeah. beat Let's call it Wonders, but it's O-N-E. What's the problem with that, though? Well, everybody mispronounces as the Oneaters. They keep getting introduced as the Oneaters. Which is not how I would pronounce a D ever, but fine. Oneaters. That sounds like a T. And then they tried... uh, Liv Tyler is Jimmy's girlfriend, the the lead singers. Isn't that his name, Jimmy? Jimmy, yes. By Playboy Jonathan Sheck. Yes. I just looked up how to pronounce his name because it wasn't obvious to me. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) she even tries to hyphenate. So it looks more like wonders. And then Tom Hanks is like, no, no, it's wonders. W O N D E R S. Well, and there are two other bands. And how many hits do they have? They have one, one hit. So this is a story about a one hit wonder. Yes. Yeah. So it's, um, kind of, I didn't hit yourself over the head. I'm slow, I guess, because I didn't get that immediately. I got it maybe halfway through or something when they were actually, when I probably it was when Tom Hanks called them wonder that I was like, Oh, Uh, I see where this is. But actually, I was so ignorant about... The, okay, to answer your question before, quickly, first. Yeah. I think I was still, like, too much of a snob to think I wanted to see yeah. this, like, popular big Tom Hanks thing. I think I liked Tom Hanks, and then I didn't like Tom Hanks for a while. Now I like Tom Hanks again. I don't know. I just was... Probably just didn't think this was interesting for yeah. some reason. Because I was a jerk. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, My taste has changed ha- a lot over the to years. the best of us, so... And I, I actually can't... I'm 96... I don't even know what else came out that year, and I'm not going to take time to look it up right now. No. But whatever it was, if it was it's some... It's probably like Pulp Fiction or something like if that. If it was Tarantino or whatever, that's yeah. what I was doing, probably. Yeah. John Woo, <laughs> yeah. all that kind of 90s stuff. <laughs> Jim Jarmusch. They're probably, yeah, they're probably yeah. like major things so, being made. Well, and, and this is know, kind of like... I was pretty done with Forrest Gump, yeah. and so I don't think I was like, oh, another actor directed a movie, mm-hmm. let's go see... That thing you do. And really, frankly, I do think the song irritated me. It yeah. was because it was on the radio all the time, yeah. too. And then they ran the ad all the time yeah. on every yeah. thing. Yeah. It was their big promotion uh, on this particular film. So, so, but I'll tell you, I missed out because I had a lot of fun with this movie. It is a fun movie. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's, it's very, exactly... It's that. It's fun. It's, it's a, a very fun movie. funny movie. Yeah. And um, some things I really appreciated about it is... I'm kind of, like, I feel like I don't ever need to see another biopic about a real band. No, no, Like no. The Doors or Mm-mm. 
whatever. Even don't give me a movie, a, a fiction film about the Beatles or the Who or anything. I don't want to. I know. I don't think there was a Who one yet. But just that's. It's always the same stuff. It's like cliche, cliche. You know, it's so simple, simplified. Even music biopics, biopics, whatever. I I don't know how yeah. to say. It. Um, there's not very many good ones. Mm. And so I. I get. I probably wasn't expecting that much of it, but what I love about this is it's a fake band, yeah. And so you can just tell a completely different kind of story, and you can take that cliche but kind of subvert it. We like movies that like challenge your expectations, and so going into this and not really having ever read or heard about it, not making the dead another called the wonders. I didn't know it was a one hit wonder sort of story. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, I was in for the same thing. Little local band immediately like makes it big, pays their dues, rises to fame, takes on the world, becomes the Beatles. And I thought really it was going to be a story of like, what if the Beatles had happened in America? Yeah. But it's really not. It's not that Because at all. they're not that good. They're kind of no. mediocre, really. <laughs> yeah. And so I appreciated, so what it ended up becoming a good film about was um, the music business and how mm-hmm. shallow and fleeting fame is and yeah. how quickly you might give up your ideals to see how far you can go and so like I, I actually I made notes where I was trying to make a list because I know that they take elements of the Beatles legend yeah. but they kind of do a number on it yeah so you know like the Beatles in in this movie um, once they get discovered by uh, that local promoter yeah. So it's not like Brian Epstein in, you know, Liverpool or whatever, who's actually kind of well known and runs a record store and he's already a promoter and he's kind of a big thing and he has connections. It's some guy in an RV or something who pulls up. The guy who signs yeah. them up, remember, is like in some ramp, like come step into my office. And um, he's not that good. And he gets them hooked up on on that circuit of the... the um, where they play county fairs and little yeah. theaters and stuff like that. Well, that was a real thing, and the Beatles had to do. No, some he of... only got them to the one in Pittsburgh, so he really oh, was a right. local. Okay, so but he when... was like Pennsylvania. Wasn't area. he the one who got them the show with um, that? That was the Bill, you know. Yeah, that... yeah. So that kind of a show was a real thing, and the Beatles had to mm-hmm. do their share of those, where they're like the fifth band or the yeah. third band or whatever on on something that plays in like the Paramount or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that the local theater in the town, but. Um, these guys, they just have like one song. Yeah. I mean, they, they really are. They're, they didn't, they didn't pay their dues. You know, the yeah. Beatles, like, I'm not going to belabor the Beatles too much, but they went off to Hamburg and, uh, Liverpool and everything. They played thousands of shows and hundreds of hours and like jammed together all the time and wrote songs and like, so there's genuinely some kind of like you know, work and genius and art and honing the craft and learning how to play together thing that went on that doesn't get to happen with the wonders. Yeah. So you get to see a band who just happens to be in the right place at the right time. Things fall into place. The right person's in the crowd. They have one song that's really infectious and awesome. And then they're just going to ride the coattails of that song, really. So interestingly, and like, I didn't read much about this, but like, so I grew up in Lubbock, or near outside of Lubbock, where Billy, uh, sorry, Buddy Holly, not Billy Holiday, <laughs> Buddy Holly, um, sort of came up. So like, I'm very familiar with the sort of the history of how Buddy Holly yeah. became famous, and like to me, like, and like I said, I've read you know 
enough about the Beatles and how they came up and all of that stuff. To me, this story feels more like an American style of how Mm -hmm. you would rise and fall in America specifically, Mm -hmm. because like the Beatles had to do all that stuff and get famous in Europe before they could make that big crossover for the ocean. You know, so to me, this feels more like an American story of like, we did, and this is back in America before like the radio stations became nationalized Mm -hmm. and like, like that they're owned by like one media company owns like, you know, all the stuff everywhere. This is like, and there probably were starting to be some of that in the 60s, mm-hmm. but radio was much more localized at the time. And like, if you go back and watch another one that we did, um, Coal, Miner's Coal Miner's Daughter, where they were driving around playing her music for all the little radio stations around West Virginia, um, it's the same sort of thing, although a little bit later in time. Um, but you got to be heard by the yeah. right DJ, yeah, and, and and the locals have to play you. And so I mean, like this is this is how it worked: is you would get picked <clears throat> up by a local promoter, who probably had a few connections with a bigger label, and probably not as big of a label as Playtone is. Playtone is a national label, but like they might have a connection with like a regional label, mm-hmm. and then eventually that would get picked up by a national label like Atlantic yeah. or so Capital or something like that. So maybe we skipped one intermediary step. Yeah, so they, I mean, you know, this is, it's it's sort of an overview of the process of, of how this would happen, but to me, this, this, like, reads like a local band, like Buddy Holly, and, like, he would go and record at this studio over in Roswell, and then that got picked up regionally, and then, you know, it moved well, it's, through the system. This is the story yeah. we don't get to hear, yeah. because we only get to hear the Buddy Holly ones. We yeah. only get to hear the ones who ended up being yeah. success- successful and national and international and recording, yeah. you know, getting a label and recording lots of albums. And I have no doubt that this Wonders-type band, yeah. tens of thousands of them, this this could have been the story of any number of bands that like were a hit for a yeah. moment, couple of months and then just faded into well, obscurity and then you, forever you, i mean like you can go to like your local local indie record store like we have like breakaway here in austin and like they have these compilations of like detroit garage bands or that. el paso garage bands that are like a collection of these people or who regional were, soul records i mean these stuff. these are the kind of guys that like they played all the proms in el paso and you know they or, I mean, like, San Antonio, I think I've seen one for San Antonio. So these people would have been, these bands would have been popular regionally and been, like, called out to play, you know, events and, um, you know, stuff like that. And then, but never made it quite outside the the sort of insular area. You know, Austin's different because we have this whole sort of pathway from you know because via southwest sort of a pathway towards bigger things so like Mm -hmm. when you're playing in austin it's more for that purpose i feel like well south by is certainly people get yeah i feel like there's less of this sort of like insular local band thing here in austin that they perhaps have in other places Mm -hmm. you know um Especially, like, back in the 60s, you know, so, um, well, Austin wasn't a thing in the 60s, so, but, um, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I think it's, it's, it is really interesting, like, commentary on, on the music industry, and, like, including, like, how quickly you'll just sign away your rights to things, 
you oh, know, like they didn't right read, away, they, they didn't, didn't read, read the, the contracts. contracts. <laughs> and that, that contract is ultimately why everything falls apart. Well, yeah. one of the main reasons everything falls apart when Jimmy walks away, the yeah. one who has artistic integrity, yeah. supposedly, really, he's into himself. He's, he's kind of into himself. Yeah. He's kind of a jackass, thinks he's the band because he wrote that yeah. song. He just wants to write more original songs. Yeah. And uh, they signed away their ability to to basically write their own songs. Yeah, essentially they have to do, they whatever, have to the, do what the, whatever the label tells them yeah. to do. And Tom Hanks is very upfront about, no, no, we've got a catalog of stuff we're going to make you record. Yeah, you're a hit factory now. You're a hit factory. We've got stuff that you we're going to tell you to record, and that's yeah. the thing. So <laughs> they're about to cut a record, right? And yeah. he, he walks out, and then you're... The very, I mean... Spoilers a bit, but I mean, it's a one-hit wonder. We've already covered <laughs> yeah. that. You you end up with Guy in the room by himself. The rest of the band is gone by the, by yeah. the end when Jimmy walks away. Yeah. <laughs> so can we um, talk? I want you. I want to hear your take on this song. Can we describe what that thing you do is like without playing it or singing so, it? Really? So I mean, it is kind of like that's the name of the song. It's it's like early Beatles. It's like a little bit. I want to hold your hand. Um, it's it's inspired by those sort of like early, you know, Herman's Hermits. It is British, such you a know. perfect, yeah, <laughs> generic Beatles knockoff. Yeah, it's like that came to my mind too. Uh, I want to hold your hand. I feel fine. Yeah. You know, one of the it's got some of the same chord progressions mm. and. Uh, so I mean, and I want to. <laughs> I just want to stop for a minute and yeah. mention that this is written by Adam Schlesinger, who was. Um, um, he was in the band Fountains of Wayne, but I know and love him from um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, who he was the main sort of songwriter composer for all seasons of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And like, if I mean, like, it would be no surprise that he's just an expert of mimicking different types of music. That entire series yeah. is 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 every song is a parody of yeah. a movement, a genre, a type of song, a specific song. Yeah. And he nails it every time. He is... How many songs do you estimate he wrote for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Because I remember... I think it's probably 70, I would <laughs> it's guess. Like it's insane. like, because there, there are two songs per episode, and there are four seasons. So yeah. at least 70 songs, where he's the main writer-composer. Oh my god, uh, He so did many. this in collaboration with, uh, with other people, including Rachel Bloom, but like... For the most part, he's the sort of musical backbone of that. And, like, sadly, he passed away in 2020. He was the first one of the wave of early victim of COVID. So, um, but he was just a, a shining talent. And, like, all, all the re- already in 1996, writing this, like, you know, perfectly, you know, mimicked, like, you w- if you heard the song, you would and you didn't have any context, you would think it was from 1964 or 63 or whatever, you know. Um, it's, it just <laughs> sounds like a Beatles song. Mm. And it's even got some of the same minor, like the, some of the weird chords the Beatles yeah. use. Yeah, uh, and, yeah he, uh, so that was an influence, he said. Got the and kind he did, of bridge that He started they have. in a minor key, which is something that, <laughs> unusual that I about, um, I think I want to hold your hand to start in a minor key. Uh-huh. And so it, it takes some... Um, you know, this peppy, upbeat song and makes it into something that's a little more complex than, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and it's in the lyrics of the song as well. Like, you know, the, it's not like, yay, the thing you do, it's like you're breaking my heart yeah, with the, the thing, thing that is, you're doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
(laughs) And yet it sounds like such a happy song. So I know that I've spoken a little bit disparagingly of the fact that it's an earworm kind of thing and that maybe it was kind of annoying. It is a catchy damn song. Yeah. It is... It is a good song. You don't mind hearing it eight times during. It will drive you nuts. (laughs) But you really do hear it like every seven minutes in this movie. Sometimes they fake you out and they start to perform and you think, oh, here we go again. But they only played the first line and then we cut to another scene. I'm like, okay, fake out. They do make allusion to whatever the B side is of their yeah. forty five. I don't remember what it's called, but it's they did play it in the movie. It's like his. It's another you know sort of ballad because this so, guy this guy is Radiohead. He wants to write uh, electronic ballads or something like that. He doesn't want to. Um... <laughs> no, he's he's not no. he's not Radiohead. Who's... He's like um, um, uh, uh, Goo Goo Dolls. He's he's that. He okay, wants to was, write Iris again and again. I was trying to again. think of someone from the era who started out in a poppy band. And, and I mean, he's, it's not like John Lennon because he's, he's not he, as talented. He's like a Donovan or something like maybe that. So. Maybe so. He's no Paul Simon. So, I'll say that. But <laughs> how much did the movie hinge on Adam Schlesinger being able to write the, a song that works? I mean, did they have to write? They had to write the song, obviously, because they're lip syncing it all along before yeah. they went into production. Yeah. But if you didn't get the song right, the movie kind of wouldn't work. Yeah, you wouldn't it's buy true. it, I guess. Yeah. So they really chose somebody who nailed it. And like we said, it was an actual hit. Yeah. In 1996 <laughs> yeah. on the radio, even though it's supposed to be well, a Well, we were fake going out. through that whole ska thing at the same time, too. So, you know. <laughs> even though it's a 1964 era, like parody, it. Parody. Yeah. It was a hit on 1996 well, and radio and it won awards. It was during the sort of height of the first like Beatles resurgence, you know, like yeah, um, it, was a they little, had the big, it was around the anthology. The big CD re- releases and the, the, the documentary. documentary came and out then, the next year. And the re release of the first original Beatles song since the 70s yeah. was when they came out around the time of, with Anthology, the documentary, when they released Free as a Bird mm. and um, Real Love based okay. on demos that John Lennon had done. And then the, the Beatles who were still alive put, like, recorded the backing tracks and vocals and okay. they released those as new Beatles songs in around I vaguely remember my dad being or... kind of skeptical of that yeah. particular thing. Uh, well, they actually you know. took the demo recordings of Lennon singing and yeah. playing the piano and then they put on, yeah. they produced it the hell out of it. Yeah. And made music video and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, it's a new Beatles song. I, I think it was like a mild controversy in my household because I think my dad was not like thrilled with that. But my mom's always been a, I don't know. So anyway, it was... I, I personally, I was thrilled at the time. Yeah. Now I feel a little bit weird about it. Yeah. But I was super into the Beatles resurgence then, and I also got into it a little bit last year. When so, that, yeah, I, I get would, that came out. the movie wouldn't have worked without the, the that. So, I mean, like, I that must have been the first thing that they needed to nail down in order after they had the script was to to make sure that 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 was that they had a song that would work at, so, in this I don't know if you ever owned the LP or anything there's but the, no. apparently the soundtrack album they would be fun to find now because mm. they actually did it in this they produced it and designed it as if it was a record from the time so the sound oh, so um it looks like a 1964 era LP and it it has like the the label and everything says Playtone Records mm. on it and all of that and it's got the the like they kind of like continue the gag 
just as just like a Spinal Tap record. It's like a hundred and twenty five dollar vinyl now. And um, used vinyl. Oh, you looked it up. <laughs> no, I haven't. Looked oh, okay, it up. I'm just digging it. <laughs> Probably. Up. And then um, apparently, it's more than the forty bucks I paid for. Uh, Apparently, based on the success of this and the song and the soundtrack album, that Tom Hanks actually ended up creating Playtone Records and mm. and used that as a label to release the soundtracks for his other other movies he's produced. Okay, and directed. interesting. That's so funny. it's kind of funny how the the gag turns into a real company. Huh. Um, and I guess he's kind of the exec. <laughs> so. So one thing that I want to hit on that I feel yeah. was like really realistic, and only in my experience as someone who's worked as like over the pandemic, I spent a lot of time working with a group of women who were writing songs and creating. So we had a, a, a song like similar to this. We had a songwriter mm-hmm. who was writing the songs and giving us idea of what they would like the instrumentation to be. And yeah. then um, we had a drummer, me as the bassist and, and then, and, and a guitar player, a lead guitar player. Cause the, songwriter is a rhythm guitarist um and we work together to sort of construct the the song as a whole with the instrumentation and the sort of like the role that the drummer plays in the overall sound Mm -hmm. of a song is really important and like um I I think they did a really good of job of highlighting that like you know sometimes when you hear a song and the song the songwriter is thinking that it's gonna be a ballad or it's going to be a slower song or it's going to be like a torch song or something like that. And then the drummer comes in is like, to me, this is like, this could be a different song with a, with a different tempo. And it really does change the feel of the overall song. Once you slide that beat in underneath it, you know, cause like writing on just a guitar is different, um, you know, because you can have that rhythm that mm-hmm. the guitar brings, but when you add that sort of drum, rhythm to it you can really play with what the song means and and how it is delivered and and the effect that it has on the audience so like percussion is really important especially in rock music Mm -hmm. to getting that across so like you know the fact that um you know guy is able to recognize that this song is not a ballad this song is you know, a dance song and all that you need to change is here's the thing is the tempo you know guy doesn't care about the song no, <laughs> guy is guy is an aspiring jazz drummer. Yeah. Like he really wants to play within, like for the art yeah. of the of drumming. Like he, you know, switches off the lights and everything at the appliance store, and like has his drum kit. Right? Doesn't he play drums in the, the yeah, store? Yeah, he plays it after hours. After hours, forgets yeah. to turn off the electric lights. The yeah, the, the sign neon outside, lights. The neon yeah. lights gets yelled at by his dad. But like he's got that. He's in the zone, and yeah. in a certain way, like he he he's you know, close his eyes. He wants to be in, he wants to be, you know, on a, in a session with yeah. the jazz greats. And he's got his idol, Del Paxton. Del Paxton. Is the name of the character, uh, the, the jazz legend who, he, whose career he's obsessed with and who, his idol, right? Yeah. His hero. Um, so when he goes in there and immediately changes that thing you do, you know, it's because yeah. he's bored. It's not that, I mean, it's just, he, he want to go, go in there and play some drums. Yeah. So he just starts doing what he wants to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a better song. Yeah. But it's not like he actually cared about the song or anything. He's no. just like, I would rather play drums at this tempo tonight. Yeah. Let's do something fun. Yeah. Then he can actually put some art into it, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting. Maybe we can break down um, the other members of the members of the band quickly yeah. to see what kind of personalities 
they are and, yeah. and their parts in the movie. Okay, so we talked about Guy Jimmy. This, I guess, is the lead singer who's... We talked a little bit about... he wrote about, the song. The he song. wrote the song. He, he's sort of the creative guy. Um, he writes the music and the lyrics. He's like the serious uh, genius. He's got his girlfriend, Faye, who like follows him around, like, you know... And this is kind of breathlessly like, adorable. Liv Tyler, mid nineties, yeah. is the girlfriend. Yeah, and she boy, she underserved in this film, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that later. Yeah, okay. <laughs> let's talk about the women in this film in general. Yeah, in general. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, Jimmy is you know tortured artist kind of guy that's uh, serious and you know wants to say things with his music and. And I think, like, ultimately, he ends up being the one who actually sticks around in the music business um, at the at the end when we get, get the epilogues and stuff like that. I actually cannot remember what his epilogue line is. Um, he he ended up as a producer is how he ended up okay. in the in the sort of. Do you remember end. what happens to Guy? He becomes a session he player beca- in jazz, and then in, he uh, starts his own music. Uh, school in Oregon or Washington or something like that after that. Is I didn't the, remember that part. Yeah. I remember that he actually got to be a, like a, a session player yeah. in, in on those jazz records that that's he's right. success with. And that's that's good stuff. And Talk um, to me about Mr. Steve Zahn. Uh, Steve Zahn. Oh, God, I love Steve Zahn. And whatever he's in, he's an absolute joy to watch. So, so he the, is their, um, I guess he's their like lead guitarist kind of. Thing. Yeah, um, he plays a character named Lenny. Yeah, Lenny the guitarist, lead guitar, and he's he's funny. Um, he has trouble attracting the ladies. Um, he's just silly and and this uh, is where you get it's along for the ride kind yeah. of thing. And this is sort of where the movie plays with like the band convention, band movie cliches yeah. and band image cliches. You've got the silly <laughs> the the Joker, yeah. the silly one. Yeah. It, so you have kind of little nods at a hard day's night or whatever, you know, that yeah. kind of the monkeys. Like yeah. he's the he's the goofball. That's right. He's along to have fun and party and and make wise cracks. And then we have um, TB. TB player. TB player. What's that stand for, Ashley? Uh, the bass player. So the bass player has no actual official name in this. So um, I didn't catch that until yeah. I was <laughs> preparing to do the podcast. Because I was like, wait, what were all their names again? And and I looked in the credit. Oh, I was on the IMDb yeah. page, and it was like the bass player. I was like, boy, they really didn't do their work this no. time, IMDb. <laughs> Why didn't you come up with the character's name? They didn't name the character. The character's name is the bass player. And it's like a take on how like the bass player commonly doesn't have any. I mean, like rarely do you have a bass player who's as well known as like Flea or I mean, these are why these are Paul McCartney. Like, there are not very many bass players that you never remember like, who the bass player is. Yeah, there's, I mean, like, there's Lenny, there's Lemmy, there's Flea, and there's Paul McCartney, and that's, like, it. You know, like, there aren't very many Some of those well-known. girl bass players, like yeah. uh, Kim Deal or whatever. Yeah, Kim Deal. Yeah. There you go. Oh, sorry. Nod to Kim Deal. Well, and Tina. So Tina. Um, Tina. Tina Weymouth from the Talking yeah. Heads. So, um, who... God bless Tina. Yeah, but, I mean, like, they, th- that's just a take on that, but, um, played by Ethan Embry... Um, you know what I think is funny? That carrying along with uh, the fact that he's the bass player and he's forgettable, he just kind of disappears two thirds of the way through the movie. So he, like, he just leaves the movie. Like, before they get famous, he has signed up to join the Marines. Yeah. Um, which, like, why would you do that in 1964? I mean, Vietnam? I don't know, but, um, or 65, whatever year it is. It's very early into that stuff. Yeah. Um, 
Well, that's another thing is that they mentioned it briefly, but Guy's character also did a... Because the draft was still in effect. I mean, like, it wasn't yeah, in effect until he served, the, right? Yeah, he served a tour. But it was just a throwaway line. We like didn't get any years, sense of that did, from his character. He did two, so it sounds like he got drafted and served his two years. Interesting, because it just looked like, for all intents and purposes, that he got out of high school and started working in his dad's appliance store. Yeah. But he's been off already. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe this was before we got into um, Vietnam seriously. In a, I don't know. My, I think that like the late 60s was more that. So maybe it was more common for people to enlist at the time, you know, because the draft was still active. But um, so he joined the Marines. Um, so he was he had like a time limit anyway. He was going to start at the end of August was when he was. Um, gonna go in for basic training so um, he had a time limit anyway and then like he ends up just disappearing and following around some marines that he sees when he gets to California um, but interestingly he also has a relationship with um, one of the um, um, one of the there's like a, a band like the Marvelettes there and he gets in no that's Lenny isn't it is it Lenny that's it's Lenny who's involved okay. with them okay I thought thought it was the bass player. I thought it was Lenny. Anyway, okay. Uh, Now now you have me confused because I know Lenny ends up going off to Vegas with that other woman, right? Yeah, he meets a receptionist in California. I'm not sure anymore. Yeah. I don't know if it matters. (laughs) It doesn't matter, no. But but TB player disappears. Actually, it's funny because we were reading about um, Ethan Embry like would say in interviews apparently at the time that actually his character does have a name it's it's tobias player player in fact is actually his last name his name is tobias but people call him toby and then they shorten it to tb so i like how he made a whole reason why his name is the bass player player. which that kudos to you for taking uh having fun with a small part like that and then i guess our other big character is is Liv tyler's uh faye um Early in the episode, there's, I mean, in the episode, in the movie, um, Guy has a girlfriend who is Charlize Theron. Um, Tina. Tina. So they can have a um, Marilyn slash uh, yeah, what's the Jackie purpose? thing going what's on. What's the purpose of the Charlize Theron character? Uh, to... Just, I mean... To be, to have, for a guy to have a girlfriend who's a, not at all interested in him? He has him? a girlfriend who's not interested in... Music or I think him. she's with him because he's handsome. She doesn't yeah. care about his music. She's really bored going to the shows and doesn't really support what he's doing. And then she runs off with her dentist. And that's yeah. sort of it. He's an attractive dentist, though, so... Yeah, but she left uh, Tom Everett Scott, who you had a crush on. Yeah. Silly woman. He's a cute man. Not you. I mean, Charlize. Oh, okay. <laughs> Charlize. So um, there is this sort defensive. of, like romantic tension between guy and Faye throughout the movie um like he's a nice guy she's a nice girl and she's with this kind of like egotistical narcissist guy who's not really interested in anything but himself you know and so like he's only interested in what she can offer him and he gives her nothing in return at all so I mean like I mean like most of the movie he's just kind of a jerk to her you know which is like, and they let her tag along. Yeah. And but they don't want her to be actively viewed as one of the girlfriends, right? Because that 
so they call her the makeup person or they or hair like and makeup costume, or something yeah, costumes, costumes costumes yeah but she uh, she's with them on throughout on tour with them yeah and everything's always kind of terrible and tense with between her and Jimmy and there's kind of a sense that she and Guy sort of like each other. Yeah, they have a... Which comes up a, a little bit more towards the end of the story. Yeah. When she ends up breaking up with Jimmy. I don't know that... I mean, like... You said that the the women in the movie were really done a disservice, particularly Faye, so I wanted you to well, say I mean, a little more about like that. Well, I mean, it's just there's nothing... Her entire existence is to be... Adoring? Um, to the men, to the various men. In service and in yeah, well, it definitely does not pass the Bechtel test in any form or fashion. But um, um, I'm it's, afraid just, most movies don't. Yeah, well, I mean, so Liv Tyler, I mean, like she's an incredibly beautiful woman. I don't know if she's the best actress, <laughs> you know. So I mean, like, I mean, like. So in my head, I was going to leap forward with, what about this? What, but I couldn't think of anything. I, like, I, I like I Liv Tyler, yeah. but I don't know why. Uh, well, I mean, what's not to like? She's, yeah. I mean, sh- she's a beautiful actress. I just can't name, like, the one movie where, oh my God, this was her So she, she was in Empire Records, which is, like, what I remember, which is another movie that I watched over and over and over again. Also had Ethan Henry in it. Um, but... Um, yeah. I mean, like... She was an she, elf. She, 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 she was good. She, she was an elf in... I mean, she was in uh, the Bertolucci movie, Stealing Beauty, which I don't yeah. remember well. I think it was her first. Film. Okay, I have seen that movie. So, I mean, like, I I saw a lot of movies yeah. that she was in. I, I mean, to me, I don't know if she ever stood out as an actress. In this one, she kind of plays this... She's got this very breathless kind of yeah. high-pitched voice going on. Sort no, of like Becky Baker the, from, the, uh, from Degrassi. From Degrassi. <laughs> so somehow we're going to mention Degrassi in every episode of this podcast, yeah. even though there's no need to. But that's fine. So, I mean, like, I, I, I mean, like, I guess for this story to be, it's nice to have, you know, this sort of romantic, you know, the, the people who were separated by circumstances are able to do get together. Do you think there's more somewhere on the cutting floor of, to her character at all? Or do you think that she only ever was just written in as the love interest who tags along and, and, and their relationship is a casualty of this sort of meteoric rise? You know, I think that, that it would bother me more if the whole, I mean, the whole thing is sort of like a cream puff thing. Yeah. It's all sugar and sweetness and fun so, uh, like, tacking on a romantic relationship with a p- girl who isn't fully developed doesn't really bother me because, like, none of the characters are But if all she had fully... more of a character and was in this situation, then it would feel yeah. more wrong somehow? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, and he wasn't that mean to her. I mean, like, he was... I mean, he was kind of an asshole, but he wasn't, like, abusive no, or... he's just cold. He's yeah. into himself. Yeah. So, I mean, like, there's... And, and I think that, unfortunately, <laughs> she is there to take the brunt of his dissatisfaction with the way their career is going. Because yeah. he's, he's continually being told to just go with it. Yeah. You know, we have to do this next thing. We've got to go, you know, be in the surfer movie and not yeah. even play our own music. Yeah. We're, we're just going <laughs> to mime along to some stupid... <laughs> I wish I could remember the name of the band. Do you remember the name of the fake band in that? Because uh, Steve Zahn loves the name of the fake band. Yeah, he keeps saying it over and over. I can't remember what the band's name is. I don't know. It was good. 
But yeah, I did enjoy the reference to the fake Frankie and Annette movies because I, um, another movie I watched a lot was Back to the Beach, which was like a, like a early 90s revival of the Frankie and Annette movies um, that came out in the 60s. Um, Yeah. The reason I was staring (laughs) off into space is because I wanted to just remember to say, because you said you loved Steve Zahn so much. Yeah. That I have to put a pin in this, but I have to show you the movie, the Werner Herzog movie, Sometime Rescue Dawn, that Steve Zahn is in, and he's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Christian Bale... And uh, Steve's on. It's probably a Herzog movie you didn't know about yeah. or even existed. Mm. It's good stuff. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on the shelf. I couldn't remember the name Rescue Dawn, so I was looking over at my DVDs. So anyway, Liv Tyler looks great in, like, mid-60s fashion. Like, the dress she wears at the end to the, like, fake Ed Sullivan show is yeah. this beautiful silver number, and she looks fantastic in it. So... I mean, like, if her job is to look pretty, she does that really well. So, um, um, well, it's unfortunate that that she has to stand for an idea, kind of, too. She has to be like their small town life, yeah, the small town girlfriend, what they leave behind, what gets lost in the shuffle. And so, she's kind of personifying that, yeah, to a certain extent. But I have to say, she gives us me one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, Mm. and it, I just think one of the things the movie does so well is capturing like the joy and excitement of when you first start to make it big. And so there's this amazing scene the first time that their record is played on the radio Yeah, and she's walking down the street or something with, uh, with the transistor radio and the ear, the earpiece, the earbud in her, it's not called an earbud, whatever it's called, earplug. Earplug is what they were called. We used to have a transistor radio with an earplug. That's how old I am. My sister had one. I don't know how long it was lying around the house. Um, So the the song comes on the radio and she goes flip, completely flips out, screaming and running down the street towards the appliance store. And she runs into one of the other ones, I think, on the street and they come in someone else. They come screaming into the appliance store, just jumping up and down. And it's all like noise and excitement. And they have to turn on all the radios in the store. And so that everybody can hear the song and mom is in the back dancing or whatever. And the sister's looking confused and the dad's upset that they're turning on the radios. (laughs) And then uh, Steve Zahn pulls up his car just out front and like jumps out in traffic and comes running in because he's heard it on his car radio. It's a great scene. I love that. And Liv Tyler screaming and running down the street is so, I don't know. I love it. It was, it was it's perfect. It's such a joyful um, moment. And, and like exactly how you would feel the first time. Because like, you know, it's like, I, I mean, I came from a small town. Like it was a big deal when we made the local paper. Like people were excited about that. You know, you know. <laughs> You mean when your town made the local paper? No, when, when, oh, like, you're, I mean, well, the thing is, the local paper is there to, right. to write about stuff that happens locally. So, of course, you, like, now I want to hear about you do uh, what 4-H thing you won or something. It wasn't in 4-H. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you won, like, a science contest. I did win a science. I did make the up, local you paper were for up that. In the paper. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you were like a national like, state champion or something. I was second place in the state on that's science. Big, that's science that's and, big stuff yeah. for level in Texas. Texas, uh, yeah. Uh, down at uh, UTSA. Oh man, you had to, to go YouTube. on the road to UTSA. Yeah, and then we got to go to SeaWorld. It was very exciting, but not the Riverwalk because there was gang activity on the Riverwalk. So really, yeah, 
Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> During the, you know, it's the 90s. Everybody's scared of gangs in the 90s, you know, so. Yep. Yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, it's a big deal to, to, I mean, like, you don't realize how small your world is. Well, what I like <laughs> is that we get, we're, we're caught up in it because, of course, we start with them before they make it. So it feels like we get to make it. Yeah. Too. I don't know. We identify, I identify at least with Guy as a likable character, likable yeah. enough character, right? He's well, charismatic. He, you, you know, he's a good drummer, yeah. actually. He can play his instrument. He's a nice enough guy, basically. Yeah. So he's kind of our, our way in. Yeah. And then as they start to make it big, you you kind of ride along with them. They're your viewpoint. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because, like, people don't have, like, a concept outside of, like... I mean, unless you work in, like, a music industry, like, of the different levels that there are and the different, like worlds there are within the music industry like it seems like it's this one big thing but like my like my dad and his friends were pretty like well known within the bluegrass community but like nobody I mean like unless you follow the bluegrass community you're not gonna know any of that you know so like like I would have when I was younger my dad's like friends would be like you don't know how famous your dad is within his like niche industry in bluegrass and folk music you know it's but they're like levels. Did you to ever that, figure you know? it out now after the fact how big a deal your dad was at the time? Yeah, I mean, like you, he, he's I got mean, books, he's big... got records. We've got. I, I see. We went to Waterloo Records yeah. the other day, and one of his records was yeah. there. So I mean, like it's a thing. But like you know, nationally, I mean, like unless you're in this niche area, yeah. like nobody knows. Like outside of the niche area, yeah. whereas they're kind of like coming up the sort of big national like billboard and yeah and all of that stuff but like it's like i don't think that people have a concept of the different levels of of everything it's like people think that if you write a book that you've got money well like anybody can write a book you know and and like get it published and like you get you know 200 dollar advance or whatever and that's like all you'll ever see because like yeah. You know, like, in order to make money in the publishing industry, you have to be like Dan Brown or John Grisham yeah. or something like that, you know. You probably at least get five or ten grand now advance. Yeah. I don't know, but that's about <laughs> it. So, I mean, like, like, yeah, I mean, like, you either have to be an expert in, in something and they'll ask you to write a book on an academic topic, but then you don't make very much money off it. Or if you're famous enough, they might ask you to write a book and you might get a big advance on that but like you know it's all dependent on your future output so yeah. like in this case like we've got this one hit wonder that's making money for the label now like but like anything that they're investing is just to get back the money that they spent on promoting this one thing and then maybe they'll give you some money to do some future output stuff but i mean like it's all really dependent on how much potential you have to make money for yeah. the label in the future so um well tom hanks and playtone playtone records they're just going to invest in a certain number of acts and yeah. see which one ends up being the next big one yeah. but like they put a little bit into you and then this one bombs, this one bombs, this one rises, and it's part of the game. And so these guys get caught in the game. Yeah. <laughs> and they're disposable. It, yeah. They're not that important. Well, There's going to be another one. And the, and the thing is, is that they, at this point especially, they had like a formula for yeah for what, could, what they knew or 
their best guess at what's going to be successful at the national level. You know, what's going to make them the most money? I mean, it's and it's all of our entertainment industries this way, you know, because they only exist in order to make money. They don't really exist to entertain us. Mm -hmm. They exist in order to get us to buy music or or advertisement or or whatever. I mean, it's it's just sort of a microcosm of the capitalist system as a yeah. whole. But um, can't go anywhere without me going on this tangent. But <laughs> <laughs> you're going to talk about capitalism. Now. But I mean, like, if you are a person like Jimmy who believes in artistic integrity and wants to get their own vision across, there's like either you stay true to your morals and don't move up, you stay in your own niche, or okay. you. You said something now. Do, yeah. Does Guy have a personal kind of artistic integrity with music that's separate from this band? Because he cares about drumming and he cares about jazz drumming and he cares about Del Paxton. What is that whole element of the movie about? We have a couple of scenes with Del Paxton. Yeah. Where he comes face to face with his, with his idol. And one time is in that late night bar. Yeah. So to me, that, I mean, what like, is that about? So, like, to me, like, when you're, when you're, like, I mean, like, in music, there are the people who want to succeed commercially for whatever reason, because, and then there's the people that, like, just love making music. And mm -hmm. I feel like Guy is an example of a guy who just loves making music. It makes him happy. This is what my dad was. Mm hmm his whole life, he just wanted to do what he loved, and he found ways that he could live and work and support his family in an industry, and you know. Whereas, like, I feel like Jimmy is more the other type, where it's about him, and, and he, he wants to promote himself and his ideas and make, you know... Where fame is as important as the music. Yeah, he cares whereas, about the fame, but he yeah. wants it to be about his own work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's interesting because, you know, your dad was in a band for a mm -hmm. while. He was in Country Gazette and yeah. um, probably other things, too. Like, he recorded with his partner, Alan. Alan. For, right? Yeah. And um, so Guy isn't necessarily unhappy to be in the band. No. It's one thing that lets him play. But do you think the Del Paxton sort of scenes that we get is is like is supposed to be the reminder to him of his personal connection to music that's yeah. still there yeah you know and that will always be there and then you've got this wonderful scene again when the recording with the the wonders that yeah. the, where they're going to start recording another song and everybody else walks out guys left in the studio alone yeah. and tom hanks walks out and says it's basically done it's over. Yeah. You know, you guys are in violation of your contract because there's no band anymore and you owe us a record. Well, it turns out that Del Paxton walks in. He's re walks in because he's recording in the next room over. Yeah. And they end up getting to jam together, which is kind of cool. But it's like that jazz yeah, drum yeah. art and his love for music and his personal connection is still there at the end of the day. It, yeah. It's not a casualty of all of this. Well, I mean, and so I think that's another thing that not a lot of people like who aren't aware of how all of this works 
are aware of is that like behind the music industry that we see all the radio play and the stuff that's streamed on Spotify, there's this backbone of really talented session musicians and performance musicians who sort of support all of this. So like when, um, uh, Katy Perry goes on tour, like she's going to have a band with her. It's not like Katy Perry and the Katy Perryettes. It's not the same people every time, but she, every time she goes on tour is going to, prom- is going to hire these very talented, um, you know, very seasoned traveling musicians who are going to travel with her on tour and play her music for her. The whole thing. And like, the thing is they, they may, they're going to be really well-known musicians within, I mean, like, David Bowie, when I saw him, he had these incredible musicians with him. David Bowie, you know, when he go when he went out on tour, would find these fantastic, ba- amazing bass player. Yeah, um, that would go on tour with him, and they had this great like chemistry on stage. But like, um, I've forgotten her name. She was amazing. Um, but like, you nobody knows them. But they are sort of like how we have a touring music industry, and same deal with like recordings. But the recording industry too, because yeah. you've got the entire community of of session musicians yeah. who live in L.A. near the recording studios, and they pull them in. And they just call them in, you know, yeah. and like they learn they learn the music they're supposed to learn in like an afternoon, and they're able to like set down this like musically perfect. Well, we sets. have that directly in the yeah. movie when TB player, yeah. the bass player, disappears and they have to replace him for now the national TV yeah. gig and they just pull in one of these session bands. And he just guys. plays this amazing and he just walks like, in walk down. completely emotionless. He's like the machine, <laughs> yeah. right? He just comes in, he's like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Do, can you pick this up right away? And he's just, Can I pick this up? And he's like, blah, 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 yeah. Blah, blah, yeah. And they're like, Okay. Yeah, he's better than all of you guys will ever be. Well and it's interesting because like that's I think how like the like Jazz doesn't make a lot of money, Mm-mm. you know, but this is how jazz is able to stay alive is you have these unbelievably talented musicians who come in and play for these major acts. And then every once in a while they get a little extra studio time and they can lay down a track and we get a new fantastic jazz record, um, you know, just sort of like in between the money making things of like, you know, when, uh, I don't know, um, Adam Levine comes in and right. records something or something like that. Well, so. I'm also thinking of, um, of uh, I cannot remember the name of the movie. The movie about Brian Wilson recording uh, Pet Sounds. Yeah. And his, his uh, um, conflict with his dad and his mm. mental illness and how people are trying to take advantage of him throughout yeah. his life because of um, his in and out bipolar kind of stuff. But yeah. like the genius of... of what was going on in his mind and his music at that time. And so they, they show the best thing about that movie for me was getting, was them dramatizing the recording of pet sounds and bringing in the wrecking crew and all those amazing studio musicians who, who really are the backbone of all, you know, the guitar and the bass and the drums and all the stuff going on on that record. It's great. Well, it's, it's just interesting to me because like, Music is an incredibly important element of so many things, a film of, I mean, like of our daily lives, but we don't realize all the, you know, all the people that, that support that, you know, yeah, like that are just there to, and like they're, I mean, like on, I, I don't know, like depending on how they do things, but like these people like get tiny residuals for like the thousands and thousands of music that they've been on, you know, for, so they get like, you know, $4 checks from Spotify, you know, 
every month or whatever for the you know eight million songs that they're on or whatever. But it's um, um, I don't know. It's it's kind of fascinating to think about all the little little things that that come together in order to create the music industry that we have. You know, um, same same deal with the film industry. Like there's all this you know all over LA are these families that have you know worked in the crews of mm -hmm. of um, you know, of, of Hollywood films for years and years and years, you know, and, and they're on thousands of productions and, and all of this stuff. And like, um, I don't know. It's interesting. <laughs> so I had to look up the name of the Brian Wilson movie was love and mercy. That's right. And it was Paul Dano playing Brian Wilson. Well, Charlie Theron's in yeah, that too. Is that's she? right. She's in the movies about musicians. Apparently. That's right. I don't know. <laughs> Before we go, one thing that I really appreciated and that I love, and I think it took a Tom Hanks to pull together were the, um, the cameo appearances and mm -hmm. all the side actors. Yeah. It, it, the way that Tom Hanks made it feel like in a way, the home movie aspect of getting your friends in the biz to come in and, and go on screen for a minute. So I know I did, I wrote down a few of them and I know that there's many more, but like I caught in this movie, we have Giovanni Ribisi, Alex Rocco, Rita Wilson, yeah, Tom Hanks' wife, of course. Um, Kevin Pollack runs yeah. the the matinee show circuit thing. I forget what he... Big Boss... Big, boss Vic Koss. He yeah. has this crazy name, this huge personality. Um, you have Chris Isaac is in a scene. He's yeah, the one who right. records them in the church. You've got Brian Cranston. That's uh, Guy's uncle. That's right. Yeah. Brian Cranston is in it. You caught him. You, you noticed him. Mm -hmm. Peter Scolari, who already said, yeah. was from Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks. <laughs> that terrible sitcom. Sorry, Tom. Um, I did watch it because I was nine years old or whatever when it was on and I shouldn't have been watching it, but it's not that good. So not a bad first uh, film for Tom Hanks. It's a, it's a good, it's a really, pretty, I, it's I a really entertaining, well-made film. I feel like the details of the time frame are really good. Like, um, it it's just, just very felt clean. like a very good, well, I mean, it's a set. I know it's always done that way, I but the production design. I think it's designed to be idealized in yeah. this particular, but it, like the, the sort of main street they oh, I have love the with main the little street. stores and, um, I thought that was cool, um. The, everything just looks brand new it's a it's, yeah. to me it's a thing in period movies where all the cars are like completely buffed and shiny and the vinyl like you know the in restaurants everything looks like perfectly polished well, everything I mean, just like, looks so clean everything has to be gritty now yeah. like we can't have regular batman with like shiny you know no. it has to be gritty batman yes. you know um, I complain about all the time. Like, Bleach bypassed and looking kind of dark and green. We and can't have a beautiful, shiny Anne of Green Gables. We have to have like a dark and gritty Anne of Green Gables, which yes. upsets me to no end. But um, <laughs> I think we already talked about that on another podcast. Well, I mean, I mean, like the thing is, is that there's a lot that's glossed over. So, I mean, like there's some like racial politics stuff that like nowadays I think we would probably confront a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I mean, like the fact that like, guys main inspiration are black jazz musicians and that you know they're sort of i mean like the entire rock and roll is based on you know black musicians and like that here's another story about a white band like yeah. making yeah. it big you yeah. know on the <laughs> and how like essentially we we took the you know you know, all the successes that black musicians built yeah. and like whitewashed it all. You can be a session player. Yeah. You can be yeah. a top 40 band. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean, like, I, I, I don't think that's the only thing that they yeah. that they shined up. And, and like typical of the 90s, we have this sort of like glossing over of any sort of race, 
racial issues that like I was a little uncomfortable with the sort sort of at the end of the movie at the hotel that they're staying in they have this really helpful black um, doorman doorman yeah. who like I mean like he clearly like knows everything like mm-hmm. he's worked there for years he like knows everyone and everything he's like I mean and and like the the thing is is like he's he doesn't own the hotel like he's doing all this you know. And, like, I don't know. So it was a little uncomfortable with that. Like, he doesn't have a three dimensional yeah. character. He's yeah. just a, yeah. He's just there to, like, help and assist mm-hmm. the, yeah. you know, so that was a little uncomfortable. I actually feel like a little bit better about the relationship between Guy and, and, and Paxton because they, like, they seem to have an understanding on sort of a musical level, and he mm-hmm. wasn't there to take anything from him. He wanted to, you know, learn from him and play with him, mm-hmm. and it was a little more sort of give and take. And they sort meet of as people over a beer first yeah. or a scotch or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So whereas, like, I don't know. So I mean, like, yeah. and I, I get that's like typical of the nineties. That's just what sort I like. Of like. Guy doesn't ask anything. No. Of Del Paxson, and it's actually Del Paxson who asks yeah. if they can jam together. He's yeah. the one who brings that up. It, yeah. He gives him this gift at the end. I yeah. don't know if he sees that the kid needs it yeah. or what, you know. But and then be, the little note in the epilogue that that uh, guy ends up being a session player for a while yeah. before opening the school makes you feel like he kept that connection with Del and ended up kind of working in that scene for a while. Yeah, thanks to that connection. And that that part kind of reminds me, there's a great documentary, which you showed me, which is the um, documentary about um, trumpet player. Oh, Chet Baker. Chet Baker. It's the movie's Let's Get Lost. Let's Get by Lost. By Bruce Weber, the fashion yeah. photographer. Yeah. Um, fascinating um, <clears throat> character um, study. Um, really good documentary about the sort of jazz industry in the... I don't know if you... I just want you to appreciate that that movie was like out of print and out of circulation yeah. for like 30 years. So it was a big deal to me when we went to see it at <laughs> Austin Film Society that time when they re-released it. Um, he's... It's a hard watch because he lived a hard life and he's not a good no, person. No, he's not a very good person. He's, he was not a good father. Um, he, he was lived, not nice He to lived women. hard. <laughs> Did lots of drugs, hurt himself, hurt other people, but he had a golden voice and was amazing with the trumpet, yeah. and I love his music, but um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful black and white uh, film. Well, and I, I think what, like, one thing that musicians recognize, like, is they'll recognize another good musician. I mean, and, like, for the most part, especially musicians who are there for, like, we love music. Mm-hmm. They're just like unfailingly generous with their time and, um, and like friendly. And like when you're talking about music, like they, I mean, like if you're trying to learn, they will yeah. help you out. Yeah. Um, if they recognize you as another talented person, they're going to want to jam with you. There's mm-hmm. like this sort of community among mm-hmm. like musicians that are, I mean, like, where where you want to like help each other out and I don't know and you got to have that in your band situation yeah, for a yeah, while I, I never mean, had that but I I know what you mean I like it and I'm a little jealous on the yeah. side but <laughs> <laughs> well I mean but the thing is well and and I'll say that there's a little um I mean like unfortunately I mean like we're we're dealing with in this movie all male musicians yeah. you know um 
It's a boy band. That that unfortunately as as generous and and lovely as musicians are, there is still sort of a gender mm-hmm. related thing. So a lot of women and and like people who present themselves, I mean like to be as inclusive as possible, uh, women, non-binary, mm-hmm. trans folks who don't feel comfortable in the sort of masculine mm-hmm. world that is music. So, I mean, like, you know, here in Austin and in other places, they are creating more, like, non-masculine, you know, to, to because cause they are inclusive spaces. They're not just mm-hmm. for women. They're, they're, they're inclusive of people of different mm-hmm. identities, but that that outside of that sort of masculine world creating a world that's that that al- allows for um people of different identities to to express themselves women fem femme people transgender mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. all of that um and so like i mean like i've been working with a group that that specifically focuses on giving people that space because like i think we've talked about this before but yeah. men tend to um, tend to know what they are interested in when they're 14 and they start playing the guitar then and they, you know, so so you end up with these people who have a lot of experience by the time they're in their early 20s, whereas a lot of, you know, women and... It's hard pe- for somebody yeah. to follow that instinct if I want to try this now yeah. and I've always loved this, I want to do this now. Yeah. So, I mean, like... And, like, when you're trying to get into that world, there are a lot of people who are, like, fed by their ego and, you know, can be exclusionary of people who are just learning. Or, I mean, like, in my experience, like, we'll talk down to you. Mansplaining. Yeah. um, Like, it's because there's a difference between not understanding or knowing the concepts and then having the talent. Mm -hmm. Or, Or not the talent, but the skill. The, the learned skills, mm-hmm. the hand skills that it takes. So, like, I mean, like, musically, you can understand the concepts pretty quickly, but, but like, it takes aren't... a while for you to develop the skills yeah. in your hands. And so, like, that disparity to have someone talk down to you because your hand Which skills... Which you should be doing. Yeah, is, is your like, hand I skills that, don't match yeah. what your knowledge of things are. It's kind of... It's a little bit disheartening. So, I mean, like... Just like any industry, we have to get past that um, anyway. So, okay. I mean, like, this is a very male-focused film, which is not a criticism. It's just how it is, but... Um, Shout out to Femrock in yeah. Austin, Texas, though. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not expecting, you know, anyone to make a film. I mean, the, although the, the awesome, like, films that we have about the rise of, of, of you know, girl bands and stuff like that, mm-hmm. love those, that sort of thing, but... Um, you know, this this film isn't designed to do that. It does the thing it's designed to do incredibly well, and it's an enjoyable film. That thing you know, it did. That thing it did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, like, don't expect any big political statements other than about the no, sort of it's a corrupted clever, nature of capitalism. It's so. a clever, well-written, <laughs> well-paced, fun movie. yeah. It nails the time and the place and the sense of this kind of a band. And uh, and it turns some of the conventions of the band movie upside down. And it gives us not a success story, but just 
I don't know. Here's an okay band that was number seven for a while or whatever. Yeah, you know. they got to number seven. I think they the, got to number seven. On the Billboard charts. Yeah. So, um, but it's, I don't know, it's it's a good introduction into like some of the issues that, that musicians face, you know, as mm-hmm. they're, and like things only get more complicated from there when you talk about streaming and, you know, residuals and like songs being used in, um, you know, in my current obsession, uh, you know, I've been following a lot of uh, trademark law um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, 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 plagiarism lawsuits and stuff like that. So um, um, it's interesting how complicated it gets when, like, suddenly you've made a lot of money and and there's other people who who are interested in either making money with the same words or... Um, you know, it's it's just very... Well, how complicated are the, is the rights issue now when you have, you know, 15 songs sampled in one track, you know, well, and you've got to add all those people as co-writers and, yeah. and get the permission, legal permission to use that and well, it's pay just, the rights and all that Interesting, stuff. like, just in the, just this summer, we've had all these, like, so, I mean, like, with Beyonce's new mm-hmm. album, there was, like, a conflict over a Kellis sample from Milkshake. Yeah. It's interesting, it's not even all that recognizable, it's like just a beat that mm-hmm. they've mixed in, but like, um, but apparently like there's some Frank Ocean albums that can't be released commercially because mm-hmm. of all the samples and they can't clear yep. all the samples in it. And, you know, the thing is, is you can make this amazing, beautiful music that has like all these influences, like Beyonce's albums are incredible that way they have all these, but it's so complicated because how we produce music these days is that there's a producer and a songwriter and, and all of this stuff. So you have to get approval from, depending on how the contracts are signed, from all of those people mm-hmm. in order to use just a, a little sample mm-hmm. on, on a record, yeah. you know. So um, anytime there's... And, like, to me, like, I feel like it should just, like... I mean, and this is how the copyright system is designed to be, is that, like, if you're using it for remix or reuse, then you should be able to do that. Um, and make something beautiful and new from mm-hmm. this remix and reuse without this like, like constant like legis uh, not legislative legal maneuvering mm-hmm. and you know making sure that you know somebody gets their half a cent for every you know ten thousand plays on Spotify or whatever it is. But um, it's nuts because like think of all the. So I, I listened to the podcast on. Um, Beyonce's album Lemonade and she has this one song that like she's taken these fantastic like like horns from this song that like had lyrics that relates back to the story that she's trying to tell but like you have to know that these horns came from this song in Mm -hmm. order to get the full like I mean you don't need to know that but it like adds to the richness of the sort of soundscape that she's created but like uh, you know because of that she has to like credit like 800 people on every song because they they were all technically contributors you know which is you I've know, seen people who don't, who don't get that complaining on yeah. Twitter, like, Beyonce, what do you mean there's 20 co- co-writers on this yeah. song or whatever? Yeah. I that's because that's how you credit all the samples. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's like Led Zeppelin is credited on some of those. And yeah. really, it's and just Isaac like Hayes one... Isaac is very prominent on Yeah, on one guitar lick that mm-hmm. they borrowed from yep. a Led Zeppelin song that now it's like they're co-writers on the song. Yeah. You know, um, so, I mean, like, I understand protecting 
people's intellectual property. I mean, like, that's what I do as part of my job as a librarian is to understand and translate that information into how we can use other information. But I think, like, people get so... I mean, and I understand it's money, so that's what the that's what the issue is. But like, it it prevents us from from exploring all that the. I mean, and like, eventually, like you know, we're gonna run out of the original sounds to make. In theory, like there are no more original sounds, so like all Every, this, everything all is a the reference. sounds are copyrighted. <laughs> everything like, is a reference. You know, you can't put those three notes together <laughs> yeah. in that in that tempo. in that order. <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I think of the big sort of lawsuits of late. But anyway, we're far from the from the original <laughs> topic. Anyway, I've, I find that sort of thing fascinating. So do you have any last <laughs> thoughts on the movie? Um, I, I just think that it was a lot of fun to rewatch this. I hadn't seen this in since probably since the late 90s, probably. Um I'm glad it so, uh, it holds up because every once in a while we screen something with the intention of doing it for the podcast, <laughs> and we're like, you know what, that, that's not what I remembered it to be. But um, yeah, I, I think it was. Uh, one thing I will say is that the way that uh, Tom Hanks shot the kiss at the end was a little weird. Like it was like from behind, so mm-hmm. you couldn't really see. Um, so like, if this was supposed to be the big music swell. Uh, romantic moment it was kind of oddly shot um so i don't know if that was like a director first director thing or maybe the actors didn't really want to kiss each other so we got like a behind the head shot so it they didn't have to kiss each other i don't know so i don't know that was one thing that i noticed at the end i was like this is kind of an awkward um kissing thing yeah (laughs) well i'm glad that it didn't have a full-on kiss with a with the camera tracking back into the trees or something like that and with sweeping music because that's not what the movie was either yeah and it's okay you know they got married so it's okay if they kiss yeah even though she just broke up with uh Uh, yeah the other guy like 12 (laughs) hours ago or whatever and and you know she uh had had their kids and took care of the music school for him so you know it's all good (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Liv Tyler. That's what you got. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for uh, listening all the way through with us, if you're still here. And uh, uh, if you like the show, please tell your friends about it and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, Overcast, all the other places. And uh, come back in about two weeks. We'll have another episode and it will be my choice. If you uh, agree or disagree with anything we've talked about today or want to put in your two cents about that thing you do or that we did, um, then you can write us at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com and we'd love to hear from you. And other than that, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.